did John Lennon really swear at you? Oh, yeah. <laughs> it was in a wonderful accent, too. <laughs> and it was so polite swearing at me. Four impressions, yeah. Can you do that one? Can you say no. what he said? No, I can't. Okay. I could, but I'm not going to. Anyway. I think the people in the back want to hear what, uh, what he said. Well, what happened was, it got to, there's a story to it. Um, Brian Epstein said, you've got to get up and calm this crowd down, or you know, we're going to take the Beatles out of here. I said, you've got to be kidding. He said, no, do it. So I went up to the back, and I waited in a little vestibule behind a few curtains, <clears throat> and I said... Uh, Okay, what do I do? And I'm going, I'm looking out. Wait for the song to end. I waited for the song to end, and I stepped out. And John Lennon says, get the F off our stage. <laughs> no one interrupts the Beatles. I'm over talking to him, and the cacophony is unbelievable. I'm listening, and I'm talking to John. I've got photos of this. I'm like this, and he's holding his ear up. I'm saying, listen. Brian Epstein sent me up here. Do you think I want to interrupt you? He said, it's either going to stop the, the noise or you're, you're out of here. And then he says something nobody ever writes. Carry on, mate. <laughs> <laughs> and that was the thing with a lot of Beatles shows, too, is that the, the, the show at Shea Stadium, the show you know, at, at all of the big venues, is that they couldn't hear themselves play. No. And, and they said when that, when that started to happen, that really started to to weigh heavily on them. And that really kind of led eventually to them going, we don't need this anymore. No. Well, let's just make records and we don't need to tour anymore. You're right, uh, you're right. And, and, the, and the thing was, if you ever listen to recordings of Vancouver, you can't, it's terrible, they're off key, everything, but it isn't their fault, No, they can't hear. Yeah. Um, let's go into uh, television. So. Your, your first venture was in Portland. You got your yep. first television gig there. You come back here, um, and you hosted a trivia game show. Yeah. What was the name of that show? Uh, trivia Challenge. Trivia Challenge. And there's an interesting story about this show. Yes. Not only did you host it, but a couple of people that were on the show. Oh, yeah. Mon Montreal had their own host. You know, I, I don't speak French. I don't even speak English that well. But anyway... <laughs> These three guys were unemployed journalists, and they had this idea to take the three guys on the panel to take this and make a game out of it. What we had tried, Jan Nablo, who was my friend and created the Trivia Challenge, uh, we tried to do it, and everybody in the game business said, give us 50 grand and we'll put a game out. I didn't know how it worked. And I said, no, no, uh, stick with something we know. We didn't know the heck with it. Anyway, Back to Montreal, these three unemployed journalists, they brought out trivia as a game. They couldn't use challenge because we owned it. And so, you know, it sold 22 million copies. Trivial Pursuit. Everyone remember that? That's what it ended up being. True story. Did they send me a check for... Well, I was going to no, say, no. you didn't get any action at all on that, did you? <laughs> I, I, I keep looking in the bank, nothing. <laughs> nothing, no, no royalty checks ever came. So uh, we all remember uh, growing up on Timmy's Telethon and watching that amazing show every single year. 20 years you were on that show. Yes. 76 to 96. Yeah. Um, CBC. Right. 
you helped raise over $75 million. Well, in the end, it was $100 million. $100 million. <sighs> yeah, you know, you know what? I mean, that's why we're here tonight. If it's kids, you got me. You know what I mean? Because they are the future, and if you don't invest in it now, forget it. So, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And, and, uh, and you're at the forefront of those types of television programs. I mean, there's been lots of shows on television, but that was, that was the one. That oh, was yeah. the ones that started it all. Really, and then uh, Variety came along. I never got involved with Variety because of the politics involved. Yeah. Uh, but I also liked the Lions uh, because they were just guys with lunch buckets, and they weren't trying to prove anything. They didn't want to upstage you. They didn't want to, you know, criticize what you were doing. And they were the nicest people I'd ever worked with. So I kept on year after year. And then we all remember Red's Classic Theater, KBOS. Yep. How did that start? And talk about some of the people that were uh, crossing your paths, some of the interviews that you were lucky enough to... Oh, man. <laughs> yeah, we did 614 shows, I think. Something like that. 618. I did oh, my math. Oh, sorry. <laughs> No, it was, it was fun going out. Again, another challenge and a passion. But, you know, we did shows from everywhere. But you, you talk about celebrities. I did an interview there on the set of, uh, well, I forget the name of the series, with Charlton Heston. That was a, a great honor. Moses. Moses, yes. <laughs> I asked him to part my hair. He didn't. <laughs> he was a very well-spoken, decent guy. Uh, and then, we, of course, we had, um, what's the guy that always played, um, uh, not Will Rogers, but um, anyway, it doesn't matter. We had a host of wonderful guests uh, on that show. And uh, he would have me out. I would go to the movie studios where they were, and, you know, it gave me an education of what I never wanted to do. Hurry up and wait. S sit around in a corner reading pocketbooks. Yeah. No, it wasn't for me. Twelve years that show was on. That kind of stuff doesn't happen anymore. No. I mean, to grow up to have Red on your radio, on your television, everywhere, TV Week magazine. How many? Well, I always loved it because every once in a while you throw my name in there. That's right, Al. And he boosted my ego every I, once in a while. The, mon the money that. was important, too. <laughs> the money was important, too. So, uh, radio, television, um, the advertising agencies, you started two of them. Yep. Uh, the first one, uh, you started at a, at a young age. I think you were at OR at, at back in the day, or we're, I can't remember where. But did Jimmy Patterson make you sell that? Yes, um, he did. Because, you know, here's, here's the story there. When McDonald's opened up in Canada, the first one was on Number 3 Road in Richmond. The first one in Canada. And he said, uh, uh, Jimmy said later, you've got to give this up. I said, but, but I, do I have to? Well, when he flashed a check in front of me, of course I did. But um, it was the first one in Canada. And I'll never forget, we did, I also did the first commercial with a little girl, I forget her name. She's supposed to be my daughter. And I, and I said, isn't that wonderful? We got change back for our dollar. It did in those days. Hamburgers were 19 cents. But it, it was an experience. And how I ended up with it, a man called George Tidball, Bud Tidball, and Herb Capozzi had the rights for all of Canada. 
uh, in, in the end, they, they lost m m money at the border, uh, at the uh, Ontario border. They didn't have enough to expand. So then it was sold to George M. Cohen. Anyway, uh, they said, listen, Red, we've got this brand called McDonald's. Would you go and have a look at it? And I said, where? And they said, in Seattle. I said, okay. So I drove down, and I came home, and they said, what do you think? I said, it's terrific. A limited menu. You know, you'd had hamburgers, cheeseburgers, fries, soft drink. But what I noticed when I was there is there's no phones, no jukebox, no nothing. You come in, you order it, and you take it away. And uh, I said, you know what, guys, to Herb and to George, I think I'd like this, but I don't know if I'd like to work for a clown, meaning Ronald McDonald. <laughs> they laughed and fired me instantly. No. <laughs> and George Tidball, he, uh, he ended up uh, starting the keg, if I'm not mistaken. He started the keg, yeah, yeah. after that. Yeah. And he had a big uh, ranch out here in Langley, yeah. Am I, uh, I can't be the only person in this room that thinks that, uh, that one of the biggest travesties uh, is that, uh, the, 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 uh, and I'm sorry for saying this in this venue, but that you lost the Red Robinson Theater. Uh, I mean, I understand corporate, I understand yeah. how it goes, but the Red Robinson Theater was not only, I mean, it's still a great venue, it's still a wonderful building, but to have your name on there was such an honor. I know. And, and a tribute to you, and so well-deserved. Well... When the yes, thank so you, well thank you all. When they decided to change the name, uh, it's a corporate decision, as you pointed out. Uh, I everybody was saying, including Bruce Allen, why aren't you saying something? I said, why? It's going to serve no purpose. So I kept a low profile, and people say to me, why didn't you stand up for yourself? And I, I didn't have to. Well, good for you, and I mean. You know, uh, you probably made the right decision because getting into a big uh, argument over things like that wouldn't no, have done any, can't any, win. anything anyway. So, uh, so they, they name a theater after you. Fortunately, it's not there anymore. But then some guy decides, I'm going to write a play about Red. And it, that became the Red Rock Diner. Yep. Well, it's a guy I'd gone to school with, and he phoned me one day, and he said, uh, he wrote uh, lots of different plays uh, one of the most famous was uh, Patsy Cline's story. And Dean Regan was his name. A Walk with Patsy Cline. Right? Yeah. I, yeah. Uh, yeah. I, um, I knew Dean when he was known as Tommy Vickers. That's his real name. But he changed it because it didn't have a show business connotation in his mind. So he phoned me one day and he said, Red, uh, I want to come down and see you. So he came down to the office and uh, we talked. And I said, what, what, what do you mean you're going to do a, a play about me? He said, Red, when you got into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, I said, I went to school with that guy. I'm going to write about your past. He said, I'm going to be one week in your life. And he did, and it played everywhere. It played Kansas City. Carol and I went there to Kansas City. Uh, it played Toronto. It played Calgary two months ago. It was amazing. You know, to see somebody playing you on the stage. And uh, when, when I was starting out in my freelance voiceover career, one of the earliest commercials I re ever remember getting paid for was to voice it for the Red Rock Diner. Uh, so our, our, our paths just kind of seem to be intertwined over the years, and, uh, and, and, it, and it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a wonderful thing uh, for me uh, to also talk about not only you being in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and let's get to that just for a second before I get into the BC Entertainment Hall of Fame and all the other places. How does a Canadian 
end up into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Cleveland? Well, it was all by votes of the uh, music business, the record companies, uh, songwriters, etc. And I tell you, it, it shocked me that I, I was in there. And the, the woman that called said, there's only going to be three Canadians. One of them was uh, uh, Jungle Jay Nelson from Toronto. Uh, one is Dave Mickey and yourself. I said, oh my God, you know, I, I broke into tears, which I want to do anyway at my age. But <laughs> just looking in the mirror makes me cry. <laughs> uh, I'm from Wrinkle City now, but anyway. And, and that was the opening Carol went with me was a memorable experience. Uh, let me give you a sample. You want to talk up? You couldn't buy a ticket to this show. You couldn't. They took the old uh, stadium where the football uh, uh, games are played, the Cleveland Browns, and we were guests of honor. So I think we're in about the 12th row, right by Lance Freed, Alan's son. Yeah. Anyway, the guy comes on and says, look, at the count of five, this is just before the show started, I want you to go, go, Johnny, go. Okay? So everybody, there's 80,000 of us in this the stadium. Go, Johnny, go, we yelled. He says, not loud enough. We did it one more time. Out steps Chuck Berry. <laughs> I could be dying here. <clears throat> You got some water here for so, you. No, 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 I know. <laughs> They're hoping. You see what I mean? <laughs> we remember where we were. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, out steps uh, Chuck, and in the middle of his song, Bruce Springsteen. And then they had a revolving stage, and the next thing you got a Ruther Franklin, and you got Bob, Robbie Robertson in the band. And it's so ma many people. I couldn't believe the number of acts that they had. I mean, it went on till three in the morning. Everybody doing two songs. Simon and Garfunkel, on and on. And, you know, they had these um, stations around the inside of the, uh, where you could go to the, <clears throat> the can if you had to. And I'm getting up saying, I I'm going to go. No, I won't. Look who's on stage now. <laughs> it was one of those wonderful experiences. You could never relive it. And you could never buy a ticket for something like that, I'll tell you. And the thing about radio, even back then, was that, and, and one thing that you'll notice if you do watch the Grammys or you do watch uh, any of the award shows that have music involved in them, the only artists that will ever thank radio are country artists. Yep. And I, I'm not quite sure if it, I mean, I understand why they do, because they're humble people and they understand, you know, where they're... Their, bucks are coming from where yeah. their bucks are coming from, and it wasn't if it wasn't for radio, they wouldn't be where they are. Um, no other artists beside country artists ever thank radio, and I always just find that very puzzling well, because it's the disc jockeys and it's the people that no, well, at least it was even that, even 30 years ago. Now it's consultants, and it's 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 no disc jockeys don't get to play what they want anymore. It's all it's all just you know uh, it's, it's researched and and just play something that's good. Well, look at the ratings and tell me what, who's wrong, the public or those clowns? I think the public knows what they want to hear. And if they can't hear it, they can go to a CD, they can go to FM or, you know. Uh, MP3, they can go yeah, to Sirius, yeah. they can go to wherever. Sirius, yeah. Yeah. 